Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Morton T. Hansen is a management professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also a faculty member at Apple University. He's a co-author with Jim Collins of the New York Times bestseller, Great by Choice, and author of a highly acclaimed book, Collaboration. But we're here to talk to him about his great new book, Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less work better and achieve more. And I think we interviewed you, might have been on the phone with that last book some time ago. So wel- welcome back to AMA Edgewise. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Why do so many well-intentioned and hardworking, aspiring leaders, why do they not understand the power of simplicity? Why don't they get that? I think they follow a different paradigm falsely, which I call the do more paradigm. So leaders and aspiring leaders believe that the more they do, the more they start projects, initiatives, customer service programs, the better they will perform or better their team will perform. And that's a false belief because it's resting on two flawed assumptions. And the first one is that what I call a spread too thin problem, which is that as you're doing many more things, your quality of what you do goes down. So you're just doing a lot of things but with very poor quality. And that doesn't let you stand out and compete in today's environment. And the second is a complexity trap. That the more things you start, the more you do. There's a complexity that sets in that you need to coordinate all those activities. And for a team that is following a leader, that can become very problematic. So they fall into that do more trap. And... What we show in this book and the study of 5,000 managers and employees that we did in this book is that the best performers, they do less, which requires simplicity. So it's the opposite of that do-more paradigm. We're so indoctrinated with that do-more paradigm in, in today's work environment. But that takes discipline. A lot of people are so caught up. If I do more, that's it. That's, you know, I was given this awesome job because I'm Hercules and I can carry infinite things on my back, but it's literally becomes that, that challenge, the mental challenge of saying, no, it really should be less and we should go deep. Absolutely. I mean, if you take over a new job, the first thing you're probably thinking about is that, what should I do? What can I start to put my mark on this job? And so you start initiatives, committees and projects and whatnot. And perhaps the better way is to say, what should I take away? What is really the essence here? And we also have another problem in in today's work environment, which is that we think that business is a sign of success. Mm -hmm. So the more busy you are, then it looks like you're more successful. But business is not an accomplishment. And that's one of the other problems we have. It's a trap. Okay, Martin, I'll play devil's advocate here. Many other books and blogs have told us how to work smarter. What's new here? What's new in your book? Yeah, I was thinking about whether I should use that term, work smarter or not, and I did some research to look at what has people said. And, of course, it's been used for a couple of decades now. And it's a a slogan. It's actually an empty slogan because what does it really mean? And, of course, nobody wants to do the opposite, to work dumb, right? So we all want to work smarter, but what does it really mean? So there are two things that are new here. Number one, 
it's diving into what that means and small differences make a big difference in outcomes. So give an example. We say we should follow our passion. Well, yes and no. You need to follow passion and purpose, and that combination is different than just following passion alone. Well, that difference actually makes a big difference in outcome. So there's small nuances, small differences that make a difference in explaining why we're top performers or just average performers. The second thing is that I put this to a test. I studied these 5,000 people. We did statistical regression analysis to understand what really drives performance. So we have empirical evidence for what it means to work smart, and that, I think, is new. One of my favorite books of all time is The Last Place on Earth by, by Huntford. And I just, I worship that book. It's an amazing book. And it obviously has to do with the Scott Amundsen race to the South Pole. Now, anytime I see that pop up in a book, it's like great thing that I'm attracted to. So interesting getting your perspective on it. In the Scott Amundsen, quote, case study, unquote, what are the not so obvious advantages of Amundsen's winning approach or process? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's a, Huntford's book is a fantastic book. I recommend everybody reading it. It's a page turner. It's an amazing... The Last Place on Earth. Yeah, it's an amazing book. So what we did when I did this case study is that I dived into that book, obviously, and many other books, including the diaries of the people on both teams. And when you study that case study in depth, I think there are, there are two things that came to my mind. The first is this idea that Amundsen took only one transportation method and Scott took five. So it's like do more versus do less. And Hunford and others describe that. So that's fairly obvious. But once you look at Amundsen, and this kind of surprised me a bit, is that he took one. He's using dogs. But the real benefit of that is not that he chose to use dogs. Because Scott took dogs too. So it's not the choice. It's not the priorities you set that really mattered. It is the second thing that once you've chosen one thing, it allows you to go all in and obsess over that one thing. And when we really dig into Amundsen's story, it's that obsession of using dogs that really stand out. It's not the choice of dogs alone. So, for example, he went all in to get absolutely the best dogs, the best dog drivers, train them, you know, on and on and on. Everything is done at an obsessive detail, really. And if you want to master something, do excellent work, you have to go all in and obsess. And you can't do that if you're doing too many things. That, to me, stands out in that story to such an incredible contrast between the two. In Chapter 6 of the book, you float this concept of something you call the forceful champion. What challenges do women face when attempting to evolve into that type of leader? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because it's quite interesting how that finding turned out. So forceful champions do better work. They perform better. And they do two things. They are able to persuade people to play sort of politics in a way and able to inspire people to support their tasks. And what we found is that men do that better and therefore they perform better in our study. And I don't have the data to prove exactly why that is the case, but we can speculate and we can rely on prior research. So what happens with women is when they are forceful champions, they probably come across as aggressive. So when you see a forceful champion who's a man, you think, wow, what a competent manager that is. But then when you see a woman doing that, 
playing their politics, being very perhaps aggressive, to come across as, as aggressive. And people then say, well, that's an aggressive woman. I don't like it. So it's our own stereotypes of the situation sure. that really makes a difference. That's my speculation. My recommendation is that we need more forceful champions in the workplace. And I just hope that we we just continue and we will learn to accept that and value that. Most successful organizations require a certain amount of time spent in meetings. People just have to participate in meetings. Pet peeve of mine, but let's not go into that right now. What are your suggestions? What, What can be done to yield optimum results from those types of gatherings? Yeah, you know, we we probably have too many meetings. And I think, you know, look at survey, what people think of meetings. <laughs> Most people hate many of them, but we need them, right? They can be very effective, so let's not just abolish meetings. We just have to make them effective, and I think you may have to have fewer of them. So what's an effective meeting then? First of all, I think it's what is the purpose of a meeting? A meeting should be for one thing and one thing only, and that is to have a rigorous debate among the people in the room. If all they're doing is a status update, just sharing information, you can do that in an email. You don't need a meeting to sit there and read out your slides or read out an email. But a debate is what it's all about. Now, that is difficult to have a real rigorous debate. I call it fight and unite. You need to have a good fight. You need to be able to have an open discussion, to bring data and arguments into the room, to allow dissenting voices and minority voices to come in, and to be able to play devil's advocate so that you actually take your arguments for a real test and you scrutinize assumption. All of those things constitute a good fight, and then you just make better decisions. And then you need to have a commitment to implementing decisions made in a meeting. And here's the irony what we found in our study, is that people who can't do this, what's the consequence of that? It's actually more meetings, right? Exactly. We, we, didn't, we didn't finish what we were supposed to do because we had a bad fight right. or no fight. So what do we do? We schedule another meeting. Yeah. So now we've got two, three meetings where you could have done with one, and that takes time and it slows you down. Yeah, the, the meeting thing for so many groups is just a rabbit hole that people go down. You know, meetings about meetings, meetings to schedule other meetings. Oh, yeah, it's, it's uh, the C's out there. Pre-meetings, right? Right. I mean, sometimes I have to go into pre-meeting. That is a pre-meeting for a meeting. <laughs> they got three meetings to prep. Here the other day, I got an email saying we had a regularly scheduled meeting, like every week or every month or whatever it was. And the person said, we don't really have anything to debate and we don't have an agenda. But since we schedule it, I'd like to use it to do some updates. I mean, come on. Yuck. Yes. But it happens <laughs> all the time. I know. Right? It's a trap. All right. And finally here, um, you wrap up with some interesting findings related to work-life balance. What did you identify in your studies, in your survey, and the people that you talked to about this issue of work-life balance? Is it a myth? So I wanted to answer just one question in the book, and that is why do some managers and employees perform better than others in their job? It's a performance question. But at the end of the study, I also asked, well, we found these seven practices that constitute the work smarter practice that drive performance. And then I ask the question, well, what's the implication for your work-life balance if you follow these seven practices? And the answer is in our statistical analysis is that if you follow these seven practices, you will have a better work-life balance. The overwhelming evidence, what that means is that you can have it both. 
you can have higher job performance and you can have a better work-life balance. It is possible. I think the myth is actually the opposite, that you have to sacrifice your private life if you want to be a top performer, have a stellar career. Now, there is one caveat to that, and that is in this principle we call do less than obsess. Exactly, exactly. That we talked about with the Amundsen versus Scott story to the South Pole. The do less, if you practice that, you actually free up time. And now you have to obsess. You have to apply targeted, intense effort to perform well. Mm -hmm. But if you go overboard on the obsession part, that you're so obsessed with your work, it becomes your life, of course, then you ruin your work-life balance. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to do that. And the top performers in our study didn't do it. They obsessed to excel over a few things, and then they had extra time over. And there are examples in the book, and the data show that. And I think that's a very hopeful message. We can actually work in such a way, and lead in such a way, and manage in such a way, that we can perform the best, and we can also have a life on the outside. It's possible. That's good news. We've been speaking to Morton Hansen about his book, Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less, Work Better, and Achieve More. Morton, best of luck with the book. Thank you so much. AMA webinars give you 90 minutes of focused how-to instruction and specific solutions to help you solve your most pressing work issues. Find tactical, practical courses on building work relationships, polishing your spreadsheet skills, managing your team to meet company goals, and more on our events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 